There are a lot of people who lie and get away with it. Over the North Atlantic, toward the east coast of the United States. President Kennedy died. That's This week on Inside Jobs, Brian Jean Lee and special guest Jordan Morris answer the question, did Shakespeare write Shakespeare? Read him, therefore, and again and again, and if then you do not like him, surely you are in some manifest danger not to understand him. 38 plays, 154 sonnets, a handful of longer poems, these comprise the complete oeuvre of William Shakespeare, generally regarded as the greatest poet and dramatist in the English language. And yet, many have trouble squaring the life of the Stratford man, the uneducated son of an illiterate glover, with the erudite genius behind Hamlet, King Lear, A Midsummer Night's Dream, and the rest. Joining me to investigate the Shakespeare authorship question are civilian investigator Eugene Falpapers O'Neill, Hey now. And conspiracy expert Lee Golden. Shall I cons- shall I compare you to a summer's lay? Shit. I'm historian Brian Lane. Welcome to Inside Jobs. Uh, we are very fortunate to uh, have Lee back with us, but even more fortunate because we have a very special guest joining us on this episode of the show. Uh, he is one half of the podcast Jordan Jesse Go and a constant presence on uh, the Indoor Kids podcast, it is Jordan Morris. Hi, guys. I went to college with you. Yep. That's how everything works on this show. (laughs) I actually got um, an email from one of our fans who uh, also went to Santa Cruz, and he said... uh, he he said he just he wanted... asked if he could be on the show. Yeah, no, he <laughs> he, he thanked uh, us for uh, proving that Santa Cruz isn't just a bunch of stoners. So there you go. Have we disproven that? I don't think so. I think he maybe hasn't <laughs> listened to any of our shows or public works. Our public, our right. public works. You mean that fountain that we built in your city hall? Yes, and dedicated to right, the that Roosevelt paid for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so today, uh, uh, so Jordan, you are uh, joining us because of, uh, like you said, you went to college with us, but you're also, uh, people probably know you from Jordan Jesse Go and sure. various Max Fun things. But then later today, you're going to be on a battleship? Yeah, um, we are going to record a live episode on a battleship because uh, a guy who works at the battleship's like museum uh, listens to the podcast and said we could do it uh perhaps no one will show up uh but uh you know seems like a good uh he said he, a good he said you guys could just drive around the battleship be... for a couple hours <laughs> yeah i assume they let uh if you're doing a show there they let you steer the battleship and fire the guns randomly <laughs> <laughs> go ahead take it for a spin <laughs> um but that will be released when when can people listen to that uh, I think that'll be out. I think that'll probably be out Monday of next week. So probably, I, if if you're listening to this, you could probably download that. Yeah, th- this will be up tomorrow, so people will uh, will definitely be able to listen to it very soon. That sounds really cool. Is it a lifelong dream of yours to record a podcast on a battleship? Um, I mean, I guess it's a lifelong dream of mine to have a venue to make a lot of really easy semen jokes. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I guess this is kind of like a sub dream of mine. Yeah. I assume that there's only going to be one captain hat and that you and Jesse are going to just go fight over the hat the whole time. Oh, I'm bringing my own Napoleon hat. <laughs> okay, good. So, Jordan, if you commandeered the ship, uh, what would be your first act as captain of the USS Iowa? Oh, After geez, blasting okay. in the Navy over the PA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically I want to be, uh, be Captain Obvious. So, yeah, <laughs> blasting in the Navy, uh, seaman jokes, um, talking about the Peter Berg movie battle- Battleship. Now, Jordan, if the ship starts to sink while you are recording the podcast, are you required to go down with it? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, well, I guess, I guess in this case that the podcast on the ship is like the, you know, is like the band on the Titanic. Uh, <laughs> to go. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I look, I'll, we'll look around. If there's like a four-piece orchestra, I'll just assume that they'll be going down with the ship. But if they're not there, I guess we kind of have to... We kind of have to take that one on the chin. In that case, you and Jesse can harmonize over a version of Nearer My God to Thee. <laughs> yeah. Um, so today we, were talk- oh, today we were talking about the Shakespeare authorship question, which is um, when I asked people uh, as I was preparing for this show about it, that seemed to be uh, – people seemed to know about it but not really know why it was um, – such a successful movie. <laughs> Why it ran for two weeks in 900 <laughs> theaters nationwide. Um, no, people people didn't really seem to know why uh, there was question about um, did Shakespeare actually write the plays that have been attributed to William Shakespeare. So I think uh, like our last episode about the historical Jesus, it would be uh, interesting to look into the question about why people are so distrustful over uh, what they call the Stratford Man having authored uh, all the plays of of Shakespeare. So uh, Shakespeare was born uh, in uh, Stratford-upon-Avon, which is uh, in Warwickshire. He was born in like April 1564, and he was born to an illiterate glover named John Shakespeare, who was also sort of politically ambitious. He had recently become an alderman when Shakespeare was uh, baptized. And I think you're reading that wrong. He was the son of Danny Glover. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and yeah. the nephew of Crispin Glover. Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's why he was both <laughs> insane and too old for this shit. Um, <laughs> when uh, when he, when uh, people were uh, going to school in Stratford at this time, there's no there's no record of anyone having attended the, the Stratford Grammar School. So we don't even have record of him going to the local school. However, uh, the the uh, lesson plans and the kind of things that they would have studied there, we do have. Uh, and that is uh, basically just a shit ton of Latin. So the mm-hmm. classic Roman poets and then translating Latin into English and reading a lot of the Bible. So that's sort of the only schooling we would have had for him. And then the next record of Shakespeare that shows up is uh, when he's only 18 years old. And he marries a woman named Anne Hathaway. Good work. I heard it was like a shotgun wedding, wasn't it? It was a shotgun wedding because uh, after they got married, they, they were. Allowed... I'm sorry, a crossbow wedding. It was a crossbow <laughs> wedding. Ooh, <laughs> uh, after they got married, only six months later, she gave birth to their oldest daughter, and then a couple years later, she gave birth to twins, um, and that's kind of when. 
the historical record for Shakespeare dries up for quite for about six years. So then he shows he shows up again uh, in London as already established as a player, which was the term for actor at the time, and uh, the writer of uh, a place for the stage. Um, at this point, it is assumed that he would have been writing with someone. So some of the earlier plays, these plays like uh, the three parts of Henry the Sixth. Um, Titus Andronicus, they all would have been written alongside a more experienced playwright because what would happen is uh, companies of players would hire authors to write uh, scripts for them. There was no copyright, so they would just hold on to the plays themselves in order to be the exclusive players of that, of that show. Uh, and so they would have wanted a playwright to be uh, just writing for them. And so they would, you know, have a, a writer. He would go until he got older and then he would have uh, protégés that he would sort of school along. And it's assumed that that's what Shakespeare is doing when he was writing some of those plays. Um, so like kind of like how like Shia LaBeouf is like the apprentice to all these guys who he plagiarized. <laughs> He's the apprentice to all these Twitter accounts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm just trying to put this in a modern context, guys. Yeah, Shakespeare also <laughs> slipped in the hashtag stop creating in a lot of his early plays. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then just and repeated, the... I am not famous over and over again. At the end of uh, Shakespeare's dad's wedding, um, Shakespeare's dad was about to hand him his fedora, but then faked him out and left the church. Also, Shakespeare was in Transformers. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so during this time... He's he's writing some of these early plays. He's also getting into a lot of lawsuits, uh, suing people for very small sums, or also appearing as a character witness for others uh, in the in the region. If you saw Shakespeare in Love, um, a lot of the plot centers around being paid the proper amount for for uh, writing plays, and that was very apparently very common to uh, right. for writers to get stiffed. A lot of what we know of this era comes from a character in that movie, Philip Henslow, that Jeffrey Rush played. And the reason why we know so much about this guy and he's the basis for so much information about the theater of the period is because his uh, diary was found. They found his journal, so we learned a lot from him. Uh, yeah, and um, uh, so during this, that's about all we have of Shakespeare until he starts to write some of these uh, more famous plays. Like uh, in the Henriad plays, so... Uh, Henry, Jesus, I'm going to fuck this up. Henry the Fourth, Part One, Henry the Fourth, Part Two, and Henry the Fifth. Uh, Falstaff was introduced and became like one of the most famous characters of the age. Uh, he mm -hmm. was referenced in a lot of documents and other things, you know, speeches, comments, and diaries, etc., all throughout the era, as well as Hamlet. Hamlet was the just behind Falstaff in terms of popular characters of the age. And They're after like that, the Roxbury guys. <laughs> right yeah the audiences were clamoring for the hamlet falstaff team up <laughs> well that's why it, it, uh, hamlet ends on uh, originally ended on an open note where it was like hamlet will return with sir john in hamlet 2 the legend of curly's gold yeah <laughs> and at the end of hamlet um on hamlet's ship you can see a little easter egg uh you can see falstaff's skull among all of his trophy skulls yeah, the the ghost that is supposedly standing behind a curtain in one of the scenes in Hamlet was actually Falstaff. <laughs> right. Um, so, so, so what you're saying is that Shakespeare had a Marvel Comics level of continuity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was also 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 always screaming Excelsior. 
Um, so uh, Shakespeare became a known name because of some of these more famous characters. And uh, around in the early 1600s, plays started to be advertised as being written by William Shakespeare, which was unusual for the time because playwrights weren't really well respected. Shakespeare mm-hmm. was also noted as having been an actor, um, both with, both with uh, the Lord Chamberlain's men, which became uh, the, uh, the King's men, and some other companies. So, for instance, uh, Ben Johnson, a fellow playwright of the era, he, when he published his plays, he noted the casts of uh, the first stagings, and William Shakespeare is actually noted as being in some of these plays. Uh, he's also mm-hmm. uh, assumed to have played, for instance, um, the ghost in the first productions of Hamlet. Uh, nice. So then, and he was known for always going so, off script. So, and sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, you got to just let Shakespeare go. You know, you can't. Uh, he can't be confined. Um, it's like he's like Vince Vaughn in that way. Uh, are there now? Are there are there records of like playwrights being you know co-credited for something? It seems like you know part of the explanation of this is that like well they all kind of wrote them together. But they just had to put one name on it. Like, was well, there a is there an instance where you can put by Shakespeare and another guy? Um, the... I think the later plays were were um, pretty openly co-authored, like the Tempest and uh, the Scottish play. I think those were more uh, collaborative efforts. It's um... yeah, Shane Black helped him write those ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, plays weren't really published by. The um, as I said, the the companies of actors would often um, hire the hire the writer to write the plays, and then they didn't want to publish them because then other companies could perform in them mm. because they would just have access to them. And so there are cases or, or assumed cases where like uh, a rival play company would send someone to a play. He would memorize the whole thing as best he could <laughs> and then rewrite it. <laughs> and then, and then the uh, the uh, the other you know rival companies could perform some of these famous plays like Henry and uh, Hamlet and King Lear and whatnot. And Wait, so those were like the the movie pirates of their day. Instead of like going in with a video camera and uh, filming the newest uh, movie, they would just go in and write everything down. Yeah, it's like the the mockbusters of the era. So there's like, you know, <laughs> transmorphers or whatever, porklet and. <laughs> I can't think of a pun on Lear. Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, just Lear spelled differently. There were there were published versions of plays at the time, and they were done in illegal ways. Um, they they were called quart, uh, quartos, which uh, comes from the fact that it's like a piece of paper that's folded over into four pages and then printed. Right. So it's a small little cheap book, and. Uh, sort of unscrupulous publishers would get a hold of these plays in some way or another and then publish them. So that's, for instance, there are like three or four different versions of King Lear and there are three or so versions of Hamlet and they all have varying, you know, some leave out certain speeches, some leave out certain scenes. Some of the, like the... You You can really tell where the, like, play pirates like got up and went to the bathroom (laughs) (laughs) the the, so for instance the to be or not to be speech in hamlet is you know it's a very well-studied poetic famous soliloquy but in the earlier quarto version should i die or not as it goes in the other version that is basically (laughs) what it says it's like to be or not to be yes 
That's the question. I think, therefore I dream. I die, therefore I sleep. It's like so, it's so, it's... And then he says, and then he says, well, time to go do something else. And then the next thing <laughs> Hamlet uh, itself was a remake. There's, there's no extant earlier play, uh, but there are references to an earlier uh, play with the character Hamlet. And everyone just kind of calls it UR-Hamlet, or Hamlet, or right, Hamlet, Brian? Yeah. Um, and Shakespeare did uh, – almost all of his plays are based on earlier stories or legends. But to kind of circle in right. on, on your question, all Jordan. Based on Kurosawa. So, for instance, the later plays, as, as, uh, as Lee was saying, and these are typically like the late romances, um, which are kind of you know mostly set in Italy and they feature gods or fairy elements. Those were written with John Fletcher, who was the uh, Shakespeare's protege with the King's Men. He was studying to replace Shakespeare as the playwright for uh, that company. And so those plays, which, again, weren't published under... Uh, Shakespeare and Fletcher's name there is other documented evidence of Fletcher um, and others saying that yes they definitely wrote it together does that answer your question yes it does okay um, so that's weird so like when we when we you know have to read a, a Shakespeare play in high school why don't why don't they say the other guy's name um, that is a, that is sort of a, a point about the historical uh, deification of Shakespeare that I'll get to a, li- a little bit later. As soon as he dies, we can sort of talk about how he rose to prominence. Um, so basically, right. as I said, uh, he took Fletcher in as his protege. He wrote a couple more plays, and then he just moved back to Stratford. He moved away from London, back to Stratford. He lived there for a couple years, um, and at this point, he was very wealthy. Um, there's evidence of him having invested in the Lord Chamberlain's men, so he like co-owned that company as well as in um, some grain uh, farms. Mm-hmm. And so he just had, a and he ton- had multiple beds too. And he left his <laughs> he left his second best bed to his wife when he died. Yeah, it's a very weird element of his um, uh, of his uh, of his will. Uh, and yes, indeed, he died in uh, in 1616. In, on April 23rd, he died. And um, his will is very curious because it, he leaves his second best bed to his wife. Um, but he also leaves a, sh- a shit ton of money to one of his daughters. Um, he only left it to her because his other daughter, um, like a couple days before he signed the will, it turned out that her husband had fathered an illegitimate child with someone else. So uh, it seems obvious that he was cutting her out of cutting her out of the will, but um, I, like, I maybe like the idea that one of the daughters, one of the daughters gets a ton of money, and then the other daughter gets that first bed that he didn't give to his wife, and like she has to like, <laughs> it's really tough because it's like not everybody's as into beds as you are, Shakespeare. I would have rather had half that money. And he was really fat in his old age, so it really sagged in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I know you think it's meaningful to give me this bed, but I don't give a fuck about beds. In 1623, uh, seven years after Shakespeare died, two actors from the King's Men uh, decided to publish his complete works. And so they went through... uh, That's the folio, right? Yes, this is what's known as the first folio. They went through some of these quartos. They went to what are known as Shakespeare's foul papers, which... uh, (laughs) Is the term... It just all smelled like farts or something? <laughs> it's the term used for like first drafts of a play that a playwright would oh, okay. then hand off to the censor. Um, 
and they went through and they edited all uh, all 36 plays that they had access to. There are two other plays, uh, Pericles and uh, Two Gentlemen of Verona that didn't end up in the, the first folio, but otherwise it's pretty complete. And then Ben Johnson, one of his uh, fellow writers, also wrote an introduction and wrote a poem praising Shakespeare's talent. He criticized him a little bit by saying that, um, like, for instance, Shakespeare didn't really care about facts. <laughs> So he yes, um, he indeed. placed a coast on Bohemia in the Winter's Tale, which uh, Bo- Bohemia is basically the Czech Republic nowadays. It is very far mm-hmm. from any coast. Um, but uh, the- anybody could make that mistake. <laughs> but the- yeah, and some of the Greek characters make references to Plato, even though the play takes place before Plato was born. And then in uh, Merchant of Venice, there's uh, like the the titular uh, Jew. Uh, he gets to walk around Venice. All over the place, even though the Jews were sort of sequestered to uh, Jewish ghettos at that time. And you could also see Hamlet's watch in the duel scene. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, there's a guy, there's like a gaffer with sunglasses in the background. Um, so, And one of the characters accidentally, accidentally mentions cell phones, and one character goes... <laughs> Wait, what's a cell phone? And then Shakespeare says, you'll see, and wakes up. Okay, where was I? Okay, so the folio um, was the first collection of all of Shakespeare's plays, and it preserved some of the plays that had been illegally published in quarto editions beforehand. But it also saved a lot of plays that had never been published before. Without the folio, uh, it's very likely that we could have lost plays like The Tempest or Macbeth. Uh, or Midsummer Night's Dream because they had never been published. Dude, you just cursed our podcast. You're supposed to call it the Scottish play. <laughs> yeah, pod- podcasts are the modern stage, Brian. I don't know if you knew this, but theater is dead. The new uh, the new boards that the players of today trod are the podcast boards. Yes. there. I, exactly. I bet you there are more dick jokes in all of Shakespeare's plays than have ever been on this podcast. Um. <laughs> so that that's really the way that Shakespeare's plays were preserved. Um, however, he was just seen as being a very good playwright. And actually, Ben Jonson was ranked higher in the public mind than uh, than Shakespeare himself. And what you have later is in... Ben Jonson was number one on the Maxim 100. Well, Shakespeare was like around five or six every year. <laughs> <laughs> Below Mila Kunis. <laughs> Um, so in 16... Wait, wait, what's, so what's, what's the most famous Ben Johnson play? Uh, they're, they're famous, I think, only among, like, Jacobian theater specialists and academics now. Um... Famous Ben Johnson play is, like, an oxymoron now. Before Shakespeare came along, Christopher Marlowe was sort of the famous, the most famous, uh, playwright. And some of his, uh, like his, pro- his probably most famous play was Dr. Faustus, but that is probably only yeah. remembered more so because of the Goethe, uh, poem that came later in the 19th century. Um, right. As far as Ben Jonson's famous plays, uh, I think my favorite title that I remember is, uh, every man in his humor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> Uh, I'm laughing already. <laughs> There's also <laughs> one I'm seeing on his. <laughs> but like honestly, I don't even know what it's about. I just know that's what the, what it's called. Um, There's one on his like wiki. Like the playwright where the... you'd see the poster and you'd be like, seeing that. <laughs> they were the red band trailers of the day. Yeah. 
Um, okay, there's a char- there's a play he wrote called The Mask of Blackness, uh, and it looks like like a black exploitation play, which is uh, maybe a first of its kind. Well, a mask is it M A S Q U E? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, a mask is like where they would take a longer play and shorten it to about thirty minutes so that they could perform it before like the the king or queen or other nobility. Uh, and it would often they would often just strip out all the subplots and add in a lot more dancing and clownery. Uh, so that is a, that is what a mask is. Um, oh man, that sounds great. So in the 16- king and queen only cared about the dancing part. So in 1649, uh, Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans overthrew the Charles I and had him executed. And for the next 18 years, they banned uh, all theater. Um, there were some illegal uh, performances uh, called drolls or masks that were kind of similar to, to that, where they were shortened with more dancing, more juggling, more dogs. Um, and you could get medicinal theater. Like if you had back pains or you couldn't sleep, you'd get like a special card and you'd go see plays. Yeah, mostly pinter plays. Um, <laughs> they had dogs or in plays. Yeah. Famously. Oh, man. What a wild card. Anything <laughs> could happen. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so for 18 years, there was no... Yeah, that dog's going to do what that dog's going to do, you know? <laughs> He's like Shakespeare in that, <laughs> that way. That dog is going places. <laughs> well, Jordan, you recently interviewed Baxter, so you know how, how professional a dog actor can be. Yeah, that's true. I made a bunch of unfunny, <laughs> fake commercials for TBS where I interviewed the dog from Anchorman 2. And so, yes, I do know that a dog can kind of sit still for a period of time, kind of. <laughs> As opposed to you, Jordan, who was always squirming on TV. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. They, what, the, what they had to do was uh, the trader had to put a, um, a can of Pringles uh, against his forehead and just say, look, look, while I said all my lines. What? That is oh, weird. Oh, that's awesome. How did they do it back in Shakespeare's day? They didn't even have Pringles. They just use a tincture that they said could uh, cure cholera. <laughs> this will cure you if you are in a sweat. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after 18, 18 years of the of the protectorate, uh, Charles II was returned to the stage, and he had spent a lot of time uh, in uh, France and the continent where he had been watching a lot of theater. So when he came back, he was a real patron of the arts, and theater came back in full swing at that time. But... Uh, melodramas and classical plays were much more popular than the works of Shakespeare. And like I said... Um, back bit- then they weren't classical. Back then they were contemporary. <laughs> People just talked about going to see current plays. Like, oh, I sure do love these current plays. <laughs> <laughs> so modern. I sure love the plays <laughs> of my era. <laughs> uh, you know, the one I'm in now. <laughs> Yeah, you don't have to say that. You don't have to differentiate. That is the only era of plays. <laughs> um, so Shakespeare's protege, John Fletcher, was actually ranked as you know more popular than him. It took really until the late 1700s and the early 1800s for Shakespeare to swing into vogue and to sort of be deified as the greatest poet and playwright ever. And that was and they large... called it bardology, right? Uh, that that came a little bit later, but. Uh, it was really and this because is of long the, after he's dead, right? Yeah, this is he died in 1616, and I'm talking about kind of the romantic poets like Wordsworth and, and Coleridge and those sorts of folks. 
um, they really held him up to be the greatest and really idolized him so that over the course of the 19th century, Shakespeare was hugely popular and his plays were restaged and restaged and it was a big event all the time to the point that yes as lee said uh, in the late 19th century uh george bernard shaw called it bardolatry uh the idolization of the bard and um one thing that's interesting one thing that's interesting about this uh period uh and this sort of goes to what your your question earlier jordan um he was so idolized at this time uh, however, he had his own one nine hundred number. <laughs> the, <laughs> the 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 prevailing <laughs> the prevailing attitude <laughs> the prevailing attitudes towards hello the prevailing attitudes towards what could be uh, put on stage were against a lot of the body and sexual and vulgar elements of Shakespeare plays. And so a lot of um, uh, theater managers would edit uh, the Shakespeare plays themselves and they would take out any of the vulgar talk. They also preferred a happy ending. <laughs> and they just put in parts about how great theater managers are. <laughs> um uh, Behold, a theater manager approaches. What a cool guy. Shall <laughs> I compare you to a theater manager? To only be, if I want to make you feel bad about yourself. <laughs> to be or not to be a theater manager. <laughs> to be. <laughs> of course, why wouldn't you want to be one? <laughs> Two theater managers, both alike in dignity, because they're all great. So, so for instance, this is a period of time when um, King Lear had its ending rewritten. So, if you know the ending of cut, yeah, if you know the ending of King Lear, spoiler: everybody dies. Um, right. And in this other version, it's revealed through a dream sequence that King Lear was actually a replicant. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shakespeare had been saying in his commentaries that he preferred the original cut. Uh, right. So they finally went back to it. But no, in this rewritten version. Uh, at the last second, when it looks like everybody's going to die, uh, they just aren't. Suddenly, Cordelia is married to her beloved and everyone is happy. Um, but sort of towards the middle of this era, when uh, in like the 1850s or so, uh, people Wait, start... As, as Cordelia uh, as Cordelia is getting married, she's like, yes, and we'll all end promptly and pick up all our trash. <laughs> <laughs> The exits are located to the left and the right of me. <laughs> um, so around this time, people were thinking like, you know, it, it, it kind of corresponds to what we were talking about uh, on our last episode about the historical Jesus, where people started to, you know, really acknowledge that there were contradictions in the Bible. Uh, people started to acknowledge that there were problems uh, with some of Shakespeare's plays. The fact that the folio edition um differed from the quartos really made people start to think that there were problems with these plays and maybe they didn't have the accurate versions. Um, so people started, really started to make people think that they needed to get girlfriends. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, so, you know, it's around this time that, uh, that people start to, you know, He's been so idolized and held up as the greatest writer ever 
that people start to really question what they know biographically about Shakespeare. And as I said earlier, the Shakespeare, there's no record of Shakespeare going to even a grammar school, uh, but it's definite that he never attended a university at that time would have been like Oxford or Cambridge. Um, some of his rivals or fellow playwrights like Christopher Marlowe and um, Ben Jonson had definitely gone to university and were even held up as being, you know, pinnacles of knowledge and university men. But Shakespeare was not as educated as them. And so he went to Valley college, right? He was he, like, uh... he went to Stamford. <laughs> The Oxford of the West. Um, <laughs> well, Marlowe was basically like Van Wilder. He was just there partying, driving around in a golf cart, that kind of shit. Um, having that a... was you, Lee. Oh, yeah. wait. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that was Lee. I was also a gay spy. No, wait, that was Marlowe. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it was also you. Okay. <laughs> hey, you guys probably have more lucid more memories of college. <laughs> we'll have sex with the other gay spy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm having sex yeah, with baby. these guys for spying, okay? <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm going to see if this penis has any valuable information. <laughs> <laughs> I'll suck the information out of this penis. It did. <laughs> um... So uh, so people are, are questioning the fact that it just seems like what we know about Shakespeare, that guy didn't, he may have genius, but he wouldn't have had knowledge. Uh, it's hard to get the kind of knowledge that was evidence in these Shakespeare plays. You know, a third of the plays are set in Italy, and there seems to be intimate knowledge of Italian culture and geography. Um, he knows all this like bullshit about lawyer stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of information about the law. There's a lot of information about musical instruments. There's a ton of information that specialized information that it just doesn't seem like Shakespeare and or a someone a someone with the background of the Shakespeare that we know could have could have you know accrued in order to put into the plays. Um, so people really started to look and think, you know, perhaps. It wasn't actually William Shakespeare, the historical man from Stratford, who wrote the plays. Perhaps it's just his name being used on the as the writer of the plays, but it was actually a different author. Mm -hmm. And this is where the real controversy starts as people try to figure out who could have written all the plays, the poems, the sonnets. And, and there's like 80 dudes that have been speculated to be the true author, right? Yeah. Of all areas of culture in life right and one of the first ones was francis bacon uh mm -hmm. sir francis people oh sorry who follow ahead. that theory are baconians yeah they're baconians, baconians which to me is like the best thing to be <laughs> and uh one of the earliest uh proponents of this was this woman named delia bacon and yeah. she thought she was a descendant of his, but she wasn't. It's been subsequently proven that that is totally wrong. Um, but she was so convinced that the works of that are attributed to Shakespeare were actually written by Francis Bacon, who was this scholar, intellig uh, intellectual... Uh, statesman. statesman. Wasn't he like Secretary of State in all these different positions in, uh, in the government? Yeah, and she became convinced that that guy had actually written the works of Shakespeare. And the reason that she thought this was she, she claimed that she could decipher codes that were in the plays... 
I'm sorry. He was attorney general and Lord chancellor. I correct. Ah, thank you. Um, so she said she could decipher these codes. This is like the mid, uh, 1800s, mid 1800s. And so she went to England. Like she was able to get funding to go to England where she stalked the cemetery in Stratford where Shakespeare is buried because she claimed that, uh, if there she, was papers and stuff like that hidden under the tomb or something, yeah, right? Yeah, if she dug up the tombstone, she would be able to find the actual Shakespeare manuscripts that would point to him being actual Francis Bacon. Uh, but uh, there was a guard on duty, and she chickened out. Yeah. Uh, she she later went insane and died in an asylum. People <laughs> fucking Bill Shakespeare's corpse. So Bacon, for a long time, for about the rest of the 19th century to the early 20th century, was seen as being the most likely candidate to be Shakespeare. Uh, And this is something that had a lot of currency with, you know, unexpected people. So, for instance, Mark Twain. uh, Yes, he wrote, wrote, uh, is Shakespeare dead or something? Yeah, and he famously said that. Um, there's no way that a, the son of an illiterate Glover could ever have written the genius works of Shakespeare. Uh, Charles Dickens also said that he didn't think that uh, Shakespeare actually wrote the works. Um, uh, a variety, a variety of you know Henry James, a variety of people in that era. Really, Michael Crichton. Yeah, Michael Crichton. He even <laughs> testified before Congress that Shakespeare never wrote those plays. Um, the dinosaurs wrote the place. <laughs> um, and so for a long time, it was really seen as uh, as Bacon uh, as being the author. And this wasn't a very controversial thing uh, among popular figures. Academics still didn't really acknowledge that this was a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, later, it seemed like Bacon had just traveled too much. Uh, was away from England for too long and you know his case started to fall apart and so people started looking for another candidate as the probable author of Shakespeare and they settled on Edward de Vere the 17th 17th Earl of Oxford Oxford. and he's actually interesting and I think Lee you were saying that you knew a lot about this guy so why don't you uh, sort of explain who he was Right. Well, the the Oxfordians are the, they're kind of the most prominent um, conspiracy theorists in the authorship deba- debate. And um, Edward de Vere was a gentleman um, who started out with a lot of promise. Um, he had a lot of land and uh, a lot of property. Um, he was favored by the queen, um, and he was really a patron of the arts. He you know he paid for plays. His father owned a theater um, and a company of men. Uh, and you know he's always paying tumblers and acrobats and musicians and actors to do things um and uh eventually his life just started falling apart and uh he ran out of money he had to sell off his estates um and um you know he had to eventually petition the queen to give him a thousand dollars a year or a thousand pounds a year and his life just really started to fall apart and one of the things that people say about Edward de Vere is the education to write Shakespeare's plays. Um, we know about all the books that he owned. He did travel to Italy and actually brought back a lot of um, 
Italian uh, clothing and uh, culture and was kind of like an Italianophile and got a lot of people in the court interested in that. He, he, um, not, only, all... he, he not only traveled to Italy, but he traveled to some of the exact locations where, Precisely. you know, Shakespeare had set some of his uh, Italian comedies and tragedies. Uh, we know what... this because he uh, wouldn't shut up about it at parties. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> he was basically that kind of guy, Jordan. He was yeah. Basically... He was the kind oh, of guy, he I, started saying grazie instead of thank you. Sure, yeah. Right. Um, and he just started talking with a fake Italian accent. It's like, oh, sorry, all that time I spent in Italy. I'm just a sponge for accents. <laughs> right. That's was a spicy doctor. meatball, he would say. <laughs> um, one, one interesting thing that people point out about uh, correspondence with Devere is that a lot of stuff that he experienced – seemed to end up in quite a few of the plays the the right. most prominent hijacked by pirates yeah like yeah that's that's the the biggest one is that he was on a ship that was hijacked by pirates and he was kidnapped and then left on a shore alone which is exactly what happens to hamlet in uh, yeah. w after he goes to england and escapes uh, uh execution by uh, the king of england uh and so people say instances like that are evidence that shakespeare uh, that De Vere was writing into these plays autobiographical elements that uh, Shakespeare or the Stratford man could never have uh, put in on his right. own. And also there was a bunch of street brawls due to a rivalry with, I believe, his father-in-law's family. And I think the same number of people died in those street brawls that died in Romeo and Juliet. And it was uh, very, uh, very similar circumstances. But the, the idea of of people writing about their own lives is really a modern conceit. Um, playwrights of that time did not really write about themselves. They wrote about things that were more interesting than them. Um, and especially, especially one of the reasons, uh, sorry, especially playwrights who were trying to attract as big of an audience as they could. Yeah. Uh, they were trying to write. So writing about gloves would not be like a really interesting thing for <laughs> Shakespeare to write about. Uh, yeah. They wanted to write about, you know, epic histories that people, were somewhat familiar with or mythology that they knew about or funny stories that, you know, could appeal to them. That, that was really what the stage was in the Elizabethan and Jacobian times. And if De Vere really did travel to, Eng uh, to uh, Italy, would there have been so many mistakes in Italian culture that he, you know, that, that Shakespeare's plays exhibit? Yeah, one so of the kind of a yeah, one of the interesting uh, examples of this is like, for instance, in Twelfth Night, there are, uh, which is a story of uh, a shipwreck and switched identities. And a there's Roman. only eleven nights in England. I mean, in in Italy. So, um, yeah, that was a mistake. That there were actually thirteen. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, no, no. The, so there are all these characters with Italian names, and then there are all these comedic characters that just have English names and use a lot of English terms that you know would have been known in. London. So, like for instance, the uh, the main character's name is Viola, but then there's kind of a comedic role who is Sir Toby Belch, right? Um, so <laughs> yeah, why would his name just be Belch? <laughs> yeah, why is his name Belch? Um, so, so, yeah, exactly. Why would Devere make those kinds of mistakes? Now, so I guess I guess I'm I guess what. What I'm wondering is, why is it so hard to believe that Shakespeare just went up to someone who had been to Italy and asked them, hey, what's Italy like? I'm writing a play about it. I, I mean, <laughs> uh, frankly, Jordan, because I've been reading about this for the past two weeks, like weeks, like heavily, and that also confuses me. 
Yeah. Maybe he was friends with Edward Devere. Who knows? Maybe he was like, dude, I got hijacked by pirates. He's like, dude, I should put that in a play. Is that cool if I put that in a play? He's like, yeah, for sure, dude. That'd be awesome. The Yeah. The um. So people point out the fact that Shakespeare in his will did not leave any books or any manuscripts or any papers to anyone. Um, suggesting that he didn't have those items. Um, he had an e-reader. He didn't need that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but then they also go on to point out that there were no l- public libraries at the time. Um, however, as I said, Shakespeare was working for a company of players, and it's astonishing the kinds of things that he people have worked out that he did consult. And a lot of, so like, for, for instance, all, almost all of the history plays are derived from one history book. Mm-hmm. So he got all of those stories from one book. And it's not... Oliver Stone's history. <laughs> yeah, American history untold. Uh, yeah. it, it doesn't seem that strange to me that, you know, the company could have purchased this one book uh, or some of the other books that he used, like the collections of mythological tales or you know, uh, traditional Saxon stories, that sort of thing, uh, in order for him to get ideas and go on to write them. At the same time, he was living in a huge, you know, for the day, cosmopolitan area, and he was very wealthy. So it's not surprising that he would have had connections who were also wealthy and who had large libraries and that he could have consulted, you know, musicians or people who had traveled extensively or people who had these knowledge of far-flung places. It it doesn't seem strange to me that he could have just consulted them for ideas. Um, A lot of the criticism that you'll find of Stratford Shakespeare as the author of the plays uh, takes this form of argument that we've seen in a lot of episodes digging into conspiracy theories, and that's just like, it doesn't make sense. Or it seems weird to me that, um, which is not right. evidence for something on the scale of in Edward de Vere secretly writing plays so that he couldn't, so that he wouldn't be embarrassed at the court, and then allowing another the stigma li- of print. Yeah, as, allowing as a done. living person, specifically an actor, to put his name on those plays in order to perform them on the stage. Uh, also, a- his poetry wasn't as good as, as Shakespeare's poetry. A lot of people said at the time that his poetry was good. Contemporaries said that his poetry was good. That's because it was, well, for a dude who is in Elizabeth's court, it's pretty good. Not for a playwright who this is his job, is it good? And people looking back have done computer analysis to compare um, his works with Shakespeare's. It, it, it doesn't compare. Even the computer thinks it sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, man, I want one of those Shakespeare reading computers. That sounds pretty cool. So, here is one of the biggest strikes against Edward de Vere. I mean, in my opinion, is that he died uh, in 1604 or something. Yeah, 12 yeah. years before Shakespeare did. And it's not like he died, uh, you know, but. After all the plays had been written, like famous plays like Macbeth and The Tempest were written after 1604. And not only that, but there is documented evidence. Stuff that happened. Yeah, there's documented evidence, as we said, that Shakespeare 
worked with Fletcher in order to produce some of those later plays. And they moved to a new theater, I think the Blackfriars Theater, and the plays changed technically uh, to, to adapt to the, the smaller space and the, the fact that they, I think they didn't have to light as many candles or some shit. Yeah, they also, um, they also had so, better uh, techn- technological abilities for special effects. So in they some had of Dolby the... 5.1. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, they were able to make sure that the audience is listening, um, and they were able to get things like, uh, you know, gods descending from the rafters on lifts and all sorts of mm-hmm. things like that, um, which is just... Jar Jar Banks. You know, which is factual in the sense that, you know, if you look at a lot of Shakespeare's plays, it's obvious that they're written to the circumstances, but also they're written to the actors. So some of the comedic characters that appear in Shakespeare plays after 1604 are written to specific actors who weren't performing at the level Mm. that they would have been before that time. So So there's a lot of like just characters setting other characters up to do impressions. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of parts where it's like, so I heard you had a rough time at the airport recently. <laughs> um, so that's so uh, I hear you ran across a particularly salty mummer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that that would seem to strike out Edward de Vere because he predeceased a lot of the important works of Shakespeare. Um, yeah. Additionally, and this one is a little bit iffier, um, Shakespeare supposedly wrote a play called Cardenio with uh, John Fletcher. And um, this play is lost now, but it was based on a story in Don Quixote. And Don Quixote didn't appear in London until well after 1604. And neither did windmills. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't have any wind in London. Get out out of here. It's all fossil fuels. Um. Should we but, talk about uh, Shakespeare's shitty writing, though? That's like a point against him. I well, feel like we should put some points against Shakespeare. Let's add, let's add in one more possible candidate, and that is Christopher Marlowe, who also yes. also Gay spy, yeah, also predeceased uh, Shakespeare's writings. But a lot of anti- that's stabbed in in the eye by Ingram Freiser over a dispute over the reckoning, which is the coolest way to die. Yeah, dispute of the reckoning, which is just a, a cool bar way tab. To, yeah, bar tab. Um, he predeceased a lot of Shakespeare's most important plays, but the anti-Stratfordians uh, conjectured that he didn't actually die when he supposedly did, that he went into hiding and then started and then con- uh, continued to write plays, but under the assumed name of William Shakespeare, or that he knew Shakespeare and Shakespeare was acting as like uh, Grandpa Simpson and he was the front for uh, hiding uh, Christopher Marlowe. Also uh, acting like Grandpa Simpson, uh, when they were testing at that THX stuff, he was in the background screaming, turn it up. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Christopher Marlowe, as uh, as Lee uh, noted, he was an educated Cambridge man. He was gay. He was openly atheist, which is mm-hmm. peculiar. Got him in trouble towards the end. For the time. Um, and then also he was known to have done work for the state. And it's assumed that this work uh, was probably Francis Walsingham. Yeah, it was probably some sort of spy craft for uh, Francis Walsingham, the spy master of the Elizabethan court. Uh, by the way, I feel like every single figure we've been talking about has at some point been played by Jeffrey Rush. 
<laughs> yeah, that's really his wheelhouse is uh, early modern characters. Yeah. And um, uh, Kit Marlowe was actually killed by uh, Ingram Fraser worked for Thomas Walsingham, who was actually Francis Walsingham's, Walsingham's brother. So mm-hmm. that's, that's always the kind of bullshit the conspiracy theorists you know, um, talk about like, how could they possibly have brothers, brothers? It's a conspiracy. (laughs) Um, the real point against this is that as Lee said, uh, he was stabbed in the eye over a bar tab, but, uh, we have the document of the inquest into the case. It was found in 1925 and it was, you know, the actual, you know, sort of the trial of what happened where a lot you know, multiple witnesses testified to the fact that he tried to stab Fraser, and then, you know, the the dagger was wrestled away from him, and he got stabbed in the face. And so it was a public death. It wasn't like, you know, oh, I heard he got shot, and he could have gone underground into hiding. He died in front of multiple witnesses. It's like Nicolas Cage's um, unfortunate murder in Con Air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so did a lot of push-ups in prison afterwards though yeah. so all those, he wanted to do is give that bunny to his daughter so so that those are some of the most popular um candidates for being the actual shakespeare but no one fits in you know as seamlessly as a jigsaw piece there are a lot of right. problems with those three there are a lot of problems with all the other people who have been proposed as the writers of shakespeare and then now, there's even crazier theories that like basically Bacon and or that Devere was not only the secret son of Elizabeth, but that he also kind of Oedipus like hooked up with her and then had his own son that was also his brother and that like the own son was actually Shakespeare. Then those are called like the Tudor theories, and those are when it gets like really insane and conspiracy theory like. And yeah. I'm pretty sure that one of the early Oxfordians was a guy whose last name was Looney. Yeah. So I think that kind of sets the tone for what yeah. this kind of stuff is. So I mean, is is all this stuff just people who don't like poor people? Is it just like <laughs> poor people are dumb? Like if you didn't go to college, you probably can't do anything properly. Like is that the root of all these arguments? Well, it seems like a big part of it, Jordan. Two 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 things to respond to that is one that it's not just poor people, but this is uh, in in England that has long had a very stratified class culture. So, a lot of the people that were quest- questioning uh, Shakespeare's uh, ability to compose these texts were people that themselves were educated university people. So, right. you know, they already have this bias built in in a you know class uh, class system like England. But then on top of that, a lot of the people today who you will see agree that Shakespeare could never have written this are um, weirdly anti-academic, and so mm-hmm. they'll. They'll often rail about how establishment figures uh, dismiss a lot of the authorship question debates. Um, yeah, which is it's similar to what happens in the JFK debate. You know, a lot of people say like, well, you know, history is just the historians and academics are just interested in preserving the, you know, hegemonic narrative. And we know the real truth. Right. It just it just seems so weird in this case where they're on the one hand taking the position that if he wasn't university university educated, he never could have written all these things. But at the same time, all these university educated people who say that he actually did write these things are wrong. 
Uh, right. It's a weird kind of irony that exists in the case that I'm I'm just not I I don't know how yeah. to reconcile. It's odd to me. Well, if if someone only with a university education could write those things, why didn't all these ed- university educated brats write Shakespeare plays? Hmm. Yes, Gene, hitting the nail on the head once again. Bam. Um, also, Gene, can you stop building stuff with the uh, that hammer? It's really distracting me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so essentially the problem is that there are issues with Shakespeare as a human. Um, like the fa- <laughs> some people say he was an alien. Yeah. No, 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 no. Uh, Definitely are, holes in that theory. There are, there are problems with him as a man and that, and they, some people say he was a woman. They aren't, <laughs> they aren't really reconcilable. Let's eat one of these popular performing dogs that was uh, so big during the era. <laughs> the, it, it, Next, it, he wants to direct. <laughs> <laughs> a cat go into his mouth because dogs eat cats. <laughs> so some people will point out that there's no extant manuscripts in Shakespeare's own hand. Um, and the only evidence of his handwriting that has been, you know, accepted as truth are six, uh, um, signatures that, uh, have a lot of problems with them. For one hand, on one hand, uh, they aren't spelled in a uniform manner. So yeah, Shakespeare, Shakespeare and Shakespeare and yeah, like Shakespeare and with an X and, you know, all sorts of things or hyphenated. But people even. were horrible at spelling back in the day. Like if you just, if you read stuff like that um like i saw this this one thing where a guy was writing about uh much ado about nothing and he spelled do like d-o-o like poop so people were just bad at writing i think well like bad at spelling their own name though yeah uh, can you spell your own name do you know where the apostrophe is no exactly (laughs) well for instance um in the will itself uh words you know, Shakespeare's own name is misspelled several times, uh, not in signature form, but this is probably prepared by a scrivener who who wrote the will for him. Um, probably. But, but um, people have looked at Marlowe and Marlowe's signature, and that one varied from time to time as well. Um, the other problem with... He the... put little, like, hearts on top of the uh, eyes sometimes. Also, there was no eyes in his name. Also, sometimes he signed his name William Shakespeare, crossed it out, and then wrote in Christopher Marlowe. <laughs> wrote, oh, shit. Whoops. <laughs> um, no, but... <laughs> I probably shouldn't be writing this out as it amounts to a confession. <laughs> uh, I'm not dead. Shakespeare's handwriting is also terrible. Uh, it looks like someone who could barely write anything has sort of scribbled this name that they're unsure how to, you know, spell the letters. Um, so that sort of suggests that like, how could this genius of writing also be so bad, not just in the spelling of his own name, but in the penmanship. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such, that's such a weird argument. I mean, I'm, you know, like I take, take a, take a brilliant person from today. I don't know. Shia. Zodiac killer. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like the 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 idea that because he's bad at like spelling and penmanship, uh, that's I mean, that's kind of a silly argument, I think. Yeah, I I think I think it is too. Um, but uh, one one issue with this is when plus he, he probably wrote everything on final draft anyway. Come on, <laughs> he just di- dictated te- speech to text. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
Another thing is that we actually uh, might have something in Shakespeare's own hand. Uh, one of the ways, one of the problems with uh, all these different versions of the, of the plays um, is that the playwright would write a play and then he would have to submit it to the censor um, because the censor... The comics code. <laughs> yeah, the comics authority code. Um so, like, characters weren't allowed to sleep in the same bed if they were married, and you couldn't show a pregnant woman or a toilet. Had to be in the second best bed if they were married. Yeah. Um, so, basically, all the all the early Shakespeare plays are just uh, kings of the day racing against trains. <laughs> <laughs> who's, who's faster? King Henry or this locomotive? <laughs> and then he fights a gorilla or something. Um, oh, man. That sounds way cooler than Shakespeare. So, so Shakespeare would have to have uh, submitted his place to the censor if it was legible. If it wasn't legible, he would hand off his version, his manuscript to a scribe employed by the theater company, and he would rewrite it in a legible manner before handing it off to the censor. So in that translation, a lot of things could change, especially if the handwriting was as bad as Shakespeare seemed to have been. Then when it gets to the censor, the censor goes through and crosses things out and changes things and makes notes and then hands it back to the theater company who employs perhaps not necessarily the original writer to then fix those scenes and make them okay to go onto the stage. So there's a play called Sir Thomas More, which uh, is you know one of these plays that seems like it was written by a bunch of different people and there are three pages of the extant manuscript which are in a different sloppy hand and employ a lot of the spellings that Shakespeare used mm -hmm. and employs a lot of the sort of turns of phrase and metaphorical imagery Paul Haggis did a draft <laughs> this, this, the modern Paul Haggis the modern Shakespeare <laughs> yes um and uh, uh, so it seems as if Shakespeare might have gotten his hands on, on this Sir Thomas More play. Now, Sir Thomas More, uh, the actual historical figure, was a statesman who was employed by Henry VIII, the, the monarch, you know, that uh, Queen Elizabeth's father. So this is recent memory, and it's very was he the big Was he the, the funny fatso one? He was the big, he was the taft of English kings. Um, <laughs> And he uh, he had Thomas More executed. So this was a very sensitive political issue in that the Queen's father had had this man executed. And so there were a lot of issues that the censor had. And it seems like when the censor turned it back to the play company, they had Shakespeare write in to change some of these things. And so these three pages are, you know, not universally accepted as being written in Shakespeare's hand, but they are, you know... It's definitely likely, and a lot of people do think that it is actual Shakespeare manu manuscript. Good enough for me. <laughs> um, so there when it comes a... to censorship, how did they like blur out boobs back in the day? Did they well, just have they like had, a guy walking around? They had around? dudes <laughs> playing the women. Right. Good point. Yeah. And they they just have like a guy like sitting in the front row that would just say beep a lot when everyone would swear. Well, they didn't swear. They would have to do like a complicated pun on country matters in order to get things on stage. Right. Um, but the censor would be like, let me undress you to make sure that you are a dude and not a mm -hmm. woman. Yeah. Just to confirm. <laughs> that was ironically when they were doing the original play of the crying game. <laughs> every uh, Before every performance, they would have the customary showing of the penises. <laughs> 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 
Um, oh man, history is great, isn't it, guys? Uh, so there are a ton of other issues, but we we have to cut this uh, cut this episode at this point. Uh, yeah, just so that we can uh, let Jordan go, who has been so nice to hang out with us and talk about Shakespeare. But yeah, thanks, Jordan. Jordan. Jordan, before we end these, we like to go around and say, uh, what do you think about the Shakespeare authorship question? Do you think it was an inside job? Meaning, do you think it was a conspiracy, or do you think something else? Hello, Jordan. Oh, oh, you're asking. I thought you were. Uh, I, I'm like. <laughs> first, I'll tell guest, you about the surely question. Surely the guest would <laughs> go ask first. It. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, it sounds it sounds sounds to me like these uh, these plays were collaborative efforts. Uh, I mean, so you know, probably there were a lot of hands in the uh, hands in the gumbo, as it were, to use a turn of phrase from my old Bayou grandma. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't. It, it yeah, I guess all the. I guess I, I I find it hard to buy the. This guy was too dumb to have to have been creative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Gene, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to say it was an inside job. All right. Typical. Uh, mm-hmm. Lee? Yeah, I think that as Jordan put it, uh, the, the no- notions of, of authorship were, were different back in the day. I think there was a degree of collaboration. Also, all the you know elitist comments that like, well, how could he have done this if he didn't have access to these books or if he hadn't traveled here or there? And the simple answer is, uh, he's a fucking genius. He's a genius. <laughs> he's one of the greatest geniuses of all time. And a genius will figure out how to do things even if he has nothing. Um, and that's, uh, that's the legacy of Shakespeare. I think it's, it's awesome that someone who, you know, is the poor son of Danny and Crispin Glover grew up <laughs> to be the greatest um, wordsmith of uh, the English language. I think uh, maybe one of the most uh, important parts about the authorship question is that it speaks to the need to keep Shakespeare relevant in some way. Um, yeah. So I think that's probably you know the only good of it is that when people find out that there is possibly this authorship question, they might go and you know just read more or see more theater. So that's yeah. probably a bonus. But in the end, I think Jordan, you summed it up nicely. And uh, to quote your Bayou ga- grandma again, that's a spicy meatball. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah. So- my uh, Bayou grandma spent one semester abroad and just fucking won't shut up about it. <laughs> Um, but uh, I want to th- uh, before we uh, get to the very end here. I wanted to thank um, uh, Mark Thomas for being on the show last week w- or last time when um, Lee couldn't make it. He was a big help, and I also want to thank all of the fans who wrote in to uh, talk to us about that episode because uh, Gene, you did a really great job uh, researching yes. and hosting the show, yeah. and it really seemed to um, you know it. it after our uh, radio play episode, I think that was the episode that got us the most response, uh, positive response from anyone. So thanks very much to everyone who, who took the time to write in and, and tell us that they thought it was a good good episode. But yeah, thank you, Jordan, so much. Do you have anything that you want to plug? You have a Battleship uh, episode? Yeah. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, you can subscribe to Jordan, Jesse, Go. There will be a, a Battleship episode up there at some point and a lot of other fun episodes uh recorded in a traditional podcasting studio and uh yeah lee uh, as lee said if you're in the you're wow in the... what a subtle dig <laughs> wait what what a subtle dig uh, well oh, no there was no dig what was the dig? Not digging at I th- you. oh i thought you were making a dig on our shitty setup 
Oh, no, no, not at all. You're, I think, Brian, it sounds like you're too, uh, you're self-conscious about the, uh, you're self-conscious about the setup. It is I think it's lovely. I like recording like this because I can also, um, you know, just tune out for a little bit and see what the cat is up to. See what yeah. your dick is up to. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> masturbate for a little while. <laughs> uh, as Lee said, uh, we're, uh, we're going to do Jordan Jesse Go at the uh, San Francisco Sketch Fest if you're in that area. I think it's February 8th at the Eureka Theater. So uh, yeah. if, uh, if you're in that zone, come to the show. And you can find out more about that at MaximumFun.org. Yes. Um, I will be there, so come watch the show with me. I will be going to Oakland A's Fan Fest and meeting the team, and then I'll be rushing over to San Francisco uh, to see Jordan's show. It's going to be an exciting day. And when is that? That's uh, February, February 8th. 8th. It's an afternoon show, so I think it's uh, 3 in the afternoon at the Eureka Theater. All right. Well, check that out, MaximumFun.org. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can go on Twitter at InsideJobsCast. You can always email us InsideJobsCast at gmail.com or you can call our hotline 413-225-1963. Jordan, thank you so much for coming and taking time out of your day to uh, appear on the show. It was a real treat to have you. Yes, Lee, thank you so much. Lee and Gene, always a pleasure to talk to you gentlemen on topics of such import. Yeah, you're welcome, Brian. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. We will be back in two weeks with another episode of Inside Jobs. Until then, follow the money. Jordan, there was one thing I wanted to say that um, y y you – I think I wore your cloak that you wore in like a Shakespeare Santa Cruz play uh, <laughs> when I was an alien in Emily's play. Like I remember like they gave Smell me – your like, musk. This, <laughs> I remember they gave me like this cloak that they're like, all right, be an alien and wear this cloak. And then I looked inside and I said, Jordan Morris – and I think that you were like in Merry Wives of Windsor or something like oh, that. Oh, funny. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think UC Santa Cruz is uh... – uh, costume department was pretty pretty meager, so I'm sure that cloak <laughs> yeah. uh, that cloak adorned a lot of shoulders. Right, that cloak had a lot of jizz on it. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, you can't wear a cloak and not jack off. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Got to break it in.